This is Comic Shenanigans, episode 366, a conversation with David Michelini. Welcome to the Comic Shenanigans podcast. This is episode 366. It's our conversation with David Michelini. I'm your host, Adam Chapman. A little bit of uh, housekeeping before we get into the episode. You can email us at comicshenanigans at gmail.com. Like the show on Facebook, read and review us on iTunes, subscribe to us on iTunes, and you can also listen to us on Stitcher. As I mentioned, today we uh, sat down with David Michelini, the acclaimed writer of uh, some great uh, Iron Man stories, specifically uh, in, um, uh, Demon in a Bottle, uh, uh, Armor Wars. Uh, he wrote a, a, a very long stretch of Amazing Spider-Man. Um, particularly, created uh, Carnage and Venom. Um, so we're going to get into that in just a moment. I first wanted to highlight uh, and to give a shout out to um, some of the listeners from the Marvel Masterworks forum. I didn't have a chance to actually. Uh, I didn't. For some of them, I think I, I named them in the podcast when I na- when I answered one of their questions, or sorry, asked David one of their questions to be answered. Um, but uh, I didn't have a chance to, or I didn't remember to list everyone's name, or didn't know it was coming up. So I just wanted to give the following shout outs to uh, Shotzi, Muldoon, uh, Badger1701, Tim Roll Pickering, uh, Richard63, Mr. A Username, uh, Super Steel, um, let's see, Very Crazy Penguin, uh, Gormu, uh, Papa Doble, um, Electric Peter Tork, uh, To Be Hulk Inude 2, and um, I think that, and Iraq Walker. Uh, I think there's only one or two questions that were submitted that I did not have a chance to ask uh, David. Uh, as you can imagine, with as long a career as he's had, we didn't have a chance to talk about everything either. But we did get a chance to talk about a lot of his, uh, his time spending comics. So without further ado, let's jump right into the conversation with David Michelini. David, thank you so much for joining us at Comic Shenanigans today. How's your morning? Uh, so far, so good, thanks. Now, I used to have uh, the the traditional first question used to be, you know, how did you first start reading comics? What I've actually started doing more of, which I find is more enjoyable, is asking what is the um, what's the the thing that you've signed at a convention um, that most took you by surprise, whether it be something that you wrote that you almost forgot you wrote or something that's not as common. Well, the first thing I signed was actually my first autograph, and it's it's memorable because I went to a a convention in New York. I was living in Queens at the time. I went to my first convention as a professional. I had some uh, mystery stories published in House of Secrets, House of Mysteries, and so forth at DC. And just started writing Swamp Thing, taking over from the amazing Len Wein on that book. I went. To, I was going to be on a panel. And I got out there early. I was standing in the back of the the room, waiting for the panel current panel to be over. Standing there with, you know, Denny O'Neill and all kinds of really established people, and this young gentleman, maybe 15, 16 years old, brought an autograph book over, and was going down the line getting people to sign the autographs. So I'm standing there thinking, I'm, I'm a professional. I'm a professional writer. I'm going to sign my first autograph. And he came up to me, and I signed it with my name, and I handed it back, all proud. And he looked at it, and then looked up at me, and said. Who are you? So, uh, <laughs> then, he said, then he followed that with, oh, yeah, you're right, Swamp Man, and it walked away. So that was very humbling, and it kind of set the tone for my, uh, uh, my lack of ego, as, if at all possible, at conventions. So it was, for me, it was memorable. What's the most common thing you end up getting asked to sign? I would imagine probably Spider-Man or Iron Man. Yeah, usually these days, uh, yeah, a lot of Spider-Mans, a lot of Iron Mans. Uh, then every once in a while, there's the occasional su- 
surprise, uh, something from Valiant or uh, uh, Mother Teresa of Calcutta or uh, my, my Soul New Universe book, a few things like that, which are exciting, but mostly Spider-Man and Iron Man, yeah. Now, what was it that first drew you to comics? Let's go back, way back. Uh, first, what, what was that again? What was, the, what was it that first drew you to comic books? What, like, how did you, what was your first interaction with comics as a kid? Oh, I, I, that's, that was like back in the 1800s. I don't remember it in, in you know, <laughs> detail. I just, I loved comics as a kid. It was, uh, I think most, most kids then, at least, comics were like, you know, good guys were good guys and bad guys were bad guys. And as a, a little kid, you had very little power, very little uh, control over injustice. And, you know, you read about these superheroes who, who make bad things good, who, who right wrongs. I think that was an appeal. The escape was an appeal. I loved stories in any form, how to, how telling people being telling me stories. I love to tell stories. So I, I don't have a specific, but that was the general reason. That, uh, drew, I think they drew me, they drew me to them uh, early on. And what, how did you kind of make the decision in your head to, I want to write these, I want to actually work in this industry? It was, it was weird because when I was a little kid, there weren't credits in comics, so I never really thought about writing comics. I always wanted to be a writer, but I figured I'd write books, uh, short stories, and so forth. Then I got out of comics when I turned 14 and, quote, grew up, unquote. And then when I got in college, I rediscovered Mar Marvel Comics because they had more realistic um, characters, motivations, uh, you know, bad things happen to good people sort of stuff. And they had credits. So I thought, well, this is cool. I wouldn't mind doing this. Then when I got out of college, uh, I sent a, some samples into DC Comics. They had, had started something called an apprenticeship program where they would bring people in to work in the offices to learn the business. And I think the only person, it didn't last long, I think Marty Pasco was the only person who was actually brought in on that. But my samples were... Uh, went to the wrong place. Instead of the apprenticeship program, they went to a Joe Orlando and uh, the an editor and his slush pile, which is unsolicited manuscripts. Um, I think I'm getting off the track here, but I'll finish this story. Uh, uh, Joe's assistant editor was Michael Fleischer, the writer, and Michael came in after lunch one day and picked up the top thing off the slush pile. He had nothing else to do. Read it. happened to be mine. He sent me a... Uh, a response and where I was living in Kentucky at the time and said we we can't work with anyone outside of the uh, New York area but if you're ever in move, find yourself in this area feel free to contact us and two weeks later I had moved to New York and was knocking on the door and uh, <laughs> pretty much had pretty much had to give me a chance and the rest is either history or infamy depending on your viewpoint now what was it writing for those anthology books when you started kind of actually writing comics that's an interesting, you know, mechanism. It's, you're not writing, you know, one of the kind of the main heroes. You're writing anthologies. You're writing other, you know, shorter stories. What was it like to kind of break in like that? It was a tremendous opportunity. They had, uh, I did that for like my first 10 months. And, uh, and, of course, I wanted to write, you know, the regular series and superheroes and stuff. But it was a terrific training ground because they could take a story Maybe you write your story, and, and, it, and it's not the greatest story in the world, <laughs> but they had they're usually three stories in the books, and they could put it between two other better stories and, you know, sell it. So, so it, was, it was great for new people just learning, because they could, they could polish their craft and still get published and grow and improve as they were published. Um, it, was, it was tough in that 
you didn't get paid a lot. And for the shorter story, six to eight pages, you got a page rate, X do- number of dollars per page. So it was, it was a little difficult making ends, well, it was a lot difficult making ends meet, but uh, it was a great training round. And by the time I, I got my first series, I had learned enough about how to write comics, about the structure, about the limitations, about the methodology, that I was able to do that, make a smooth transition into writing regular monthly comic books. Now, this actually brings up a listener question. So we, we, we got questions from the uh, Marvel Masterworks uh, forum, and there's a listener there who goes by the name uh, Papa Doble. Um, he, first of all, wanted to say that um, he thinks you wrote the, the best uh, unknown soldier tale, uh, 8,000 8, to 1, which is from uh, Star Spangled Stories uh, 183. So he thinks that's like the best story that anyone ever wrote with the unknown soldier. Um, oh, wow. But he also wanted to ask, uh, what did you think of working in the war comic genre? It was great. I mean, I was—I came out of uh, the turbulent 1960s and early 70s in the comics world with the Vietnam War and so forth. I had strong feelings uh, uh, against war, and what better, what better format to, to, to talk about the horrors of war than war? Um, I, I didn't, I didn't try to, to um, uh, you know, preach, but I, I tried to show what war did to people, not only the, the, the uh, civilians caught in the middle of it, but the soldiers who were, were caught in the middle of it, too. They, you know, they're all, even the German soldiers were all, all gung-ho, yeah, I'm Nazi. You know, they're people. And, and what better way to show what war does to people than a war story? So I, it was a great opportunity, and I, 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 really, I really enjoyed writing those stories. I'm very happy that uh, someone still remembers them fondly. <laughs> Now, was Swamp Thing your first kind of, kind of, I guess, more regular gig, or? Well, it was my, my first gig outside of the war stories, I think. Now, what was it like transitioning to a character like Swamp Thing, and again, as you said, taking after Len Wein? <laughs> I thought the Len Wein, Bernie Wrights, and Swamp Thing was the, the best written, certainly, and, and best drawn comic on the stands at the time. Uh, I loved it, and it was a, it was a, a huge and scary responsibility to follow Len because he, he was so literate in the, in the, the writing of, of the stories. Such, such use of language uh, was just amazing. And I literally would read those 13 comics. Every time I started to start plotting a Swamp Thing or writing a Swamp Thing, I'd go back and read all 13 of his issues to try to emulate it as close as possible to what he did. I failed, of course, but by <laughs> trying for that high level, I... I improved my writing, and it made me a better writer. So it was it was a thrill and a challenge and a scary thing, and it was a highlight of uh, my DC days for me. Now, how did you make the transition over to Marvel? Because I mean, you're working at DC for for a few years. You're working on all these different books, and suddenly you show up at Marvel. How did that transition work? Well, the, uh, I worked for Marvel for five years. Uh, DC, I'm sorry, I worked for DC for five years. Uh, problems occurred. Uh, I quit. Uh, I went over. I had met Jim Shooter at a convention. Uh, I went over. I contacted Jim Shooter at Marvel. I said, could I get some work from Marvel? And he said, would today be too soon? <laughs> Which was incredibly flattering. Now, that's right. I met him at a party. I forgot. Yeah, it was a party. Anyway, um, so I was still under contract to Marvel, to DC. So I completed my DC work and went over to Marvel. And Jim had been writing... Uh, uh, the Avengers, and he was 
trying to write and trying to be uh, editor-in-chief of the entire Marvel line. So he, my first three stories were Avengers stories that Jim had plotted and just, just needed someone to fill in and do the scripts. So I was handed the, uh, the artwork, and, and uh, it was my first experience with, with Marvel style. That is, you, you do the plot, the pencils are drawn, you write the dialogue, sound effects, captions to the pencils, and then it's lettered and inked. Whereas at, Mar- at DC, I've been working full script, which is like a movie script, like panel one, this happens, here's the dialogue. Panel two, this happens, here's the dialogue. So working with Jim, especially since Jim didn't write his plots down at the time, he was uh, so pressed for time, he would call the artist up and describe the story to the artist. The artist would take notes and he, he, he uh, pencil the story. So those first three stories, I had no written plots to go from, but it worked great for me because Jim would then tell me the plots and I would take notes. And Jim was so well versed with those characters. I mean, he could tell you what they had for breakfast last Thursday. He knew them so well. <laughs> and and I got to know those comics well by listening to what Jim said about them. So it was a tremendous learning period, uh, an exciting transition. And uh, that's, uh, I think I've answered your question. Absolutely. Now, what was, oh, the, I mean, what did you prefer in terms of writing style? Did you like writing full scripts more, or did you like kind of the looseness of doing Marvel style? Uh, when I first moved from D.C. to Marvel, I, I hated writing Marvel style because I was so used to the control of writing a full script. Uh, as time passed, I got to appreciate the Marvel style, and it was 180 degrees. I uh, I became where I preferred that far over the full script. Full script gives you more control, but you know you don't really know what you're going to get. Uh, I remember one writer telling me that he had written a western, and uh, he had asked for uh, a stagecoach to be hitting a, a rock and turning over on its side. And when he got the picture, was a close-up of a wheel hitting the rock. Instead of the whole thing of showing, the, and then there's the aftermath. He didn't see the actual tipping because of the artist. Working Marvel style, you get surprises that can be good or bad, but if you see something in the art that's not clear, you can clarify it with dialogue. And, and I find that Marvel style makes the end product a lot clearer and, and, and uh, than, you know, full script. Plus, if you see something's clear in the art, you don't have to talk about it. It, it helps trim down the words, which speeds up, uh, smooths out the reading if, if reader does have to read. And then there was a big explosion and, and the debris flew everywhere and three people were killed, blah, blah. If you see that in the picture, you don't have to talk about it. So I think it, uh, working Marvel style makes the story clearer and smoother and it's my preferred method and it's something that they rarely do these days, unfortunately. Now, when you came on with Marvel, you were writing Avengers and obviously you were writing Iron Man. Um, with Iron Man, I actually have a, li- a listener question. Um, the question was, Iron Man was somewhat unusual in that the anchor, Bob Layton, was generally the co-plotter. Uh, was the penciler then handed a full script, or was it still Marvel method? Uh, still Marvel style. Bob and I would get together. We, we lived close together in a small <coughs> college town at the same time. Uh, at that time, and we would get together sitting on the couch, you know, walking around, pacing in the living room, work out a plot. I would then go home, uh, structure the plot, add details, and send that in. Then it was the penciler, John Romita Jr., generally in that first era, uh, would draw the pictures, and then that would be sent to me. I would write the dialogue and captions. Then it would go to the, the letterer, and then Bob would get it to ink. 
Now, did you and Bob previously know each other? Because it kind of looks like you, you jumped on the book and you already have the co-plotter, but it looks like Bob wasn't anywhere nearby like earlier. So how did that kind of come about? We met each other while we were working for DC. Uh, he inked uh, Star Hunters, and uh, I think he inked an issue or two of Claw the Unconquered. And we'd, we'd get together, we'd meet for lunch and everything. Everyone will meet at, at DC and, and talk. We became friends, and we would talk. Bob was a huge idea man. He would throw out ideas even for something I was writing that I didn't, you know, he wasn't involved with. It was an aching or copilotic. So, and, you know, I would take the good and discard what I didn't think worked, and, and it, was, it was great. So when we got together on Iron Man, it was, it was a, a double, uh, twice as good things goes. First off, you know, we knew each other. Second off, he was a huge Iron Man fan, had always been a huge Iron Man fan. I had never read Iron Man. So he had he knew the history. I had fresh eyes coming to the character, and since I knew he was a he he was a terrific idea man, it just seemed reasonable and profitable to both of us to work together on the plots, and uh, it clicked. Now uh, this is again another listener question. They asked uh, if you could elaborate on the the world building that you did, Fireman, because you really kind of built up his supporting cast. You added characters. You beefed up the rogues gallery that kind of fit well within the tech industry uh, aspect of the character. What was it like, kind of trying to build out in terms of Fireman and who he was and who his his support system was? Well, <clears throat> when I first, like I say, I had not read Iron Man. Uh, and so I read like the, la- the previous six issues re- re- leading up to what I was doing. And I, with conversations with Bob and thinking about it my, myself about who is this guy? What would a person in this situation, what would a real person in this situation do? Uh, and started thinking of him as, okay, what he was. He was a, a, a rich industrialist, inventor, brilliant man uh, with faults and foibles, but a, a noble man at his core, and I, we use that to spearhead the stories. Most of the re- supporting cast came from what was needed in a story. Okay, we needed, you know, uh, a, uh, what they call an office manager these days. Uh, so there, there is Bambi Arbogast. He needed uh, a lawyer, so we that he needed a pilot. We, he needed a, this. So as we needed these characters, we brought them in, and then we developed them within the stories with the Tony Stark character. He needed a friend, so there's Jim Rhodes. Up to that time, pretty much all of his friends were other superheroes. This was a human being. Human beings need other human beings to talk to and to interact with. He needed a friend, so that's how Jim Rhodes came, to, came about. So it was just pretty much an organic uh, process. You know, what was needed for the story and the characters was put into the story as the characters needed it. Now, I'm sure you've, you've talked ad nauseum over the years about Demon in a Bottle, um, but it is obviously you know a huge touchstone for the Iron Man character. Um, without kind of retreading what you've already talked about in the past in, in other interviews, kind of what was the genesis of that, or did you have any idea that it was going to end up being so impactful? Uh, so what? Did you have, well, I guess when you were writing it first, I guess, did you, did you think that you were adding such a huge, you know, element to the character or was it just kind of a a storyline that you wanted to explore? Like kind of how did, you know, making Tony an alcoholic come about? Uh, Again, that was me not knowing, you know, the character's history or anything and just reading those last previous six issues. I mean, here he was, his, his, his company was about to be taken over a, a, um, 
uh, hostile takeover. Uh, the government was trying to regulate the Avengers. His love life was in the toilet. And I thought, okay, what would happen to a real person? What would a real person do? They would try to ease the stress, I figured. And these days, it'd probably be cocaine or other you know, drugs like that. Back in the 1980s, it was, alcohol was, was, I mean, it had been established that he was a party guy, uh, that he drank, uh, you know. Uh, so it just seemed to me, okay, this would be a logical thing for him to do is to try to ease the tension, ease the stress, escape from all of this pressure and the drug of choice for his uh, situation would likely be alcohol. And uh, Bob liked the idea. We took the Jim Shooter and to his credit, Jim simply said, do it well, which of course we planned to do anyway. He didn't give us any restrictions whatsoever. So that, that was the genesis of that particular storyline. There was a, a listener who said that uh, if not for you, uh, he may not have learned what Dom Perignon was. <laughs> well, it, it is my joy to educate other people. <laughs> um, I also want to ask, um, with regards to Demon in a Bottle, um, so that, that was, obviously it's a very influential uh, storyline. Uh, given that you wrote Demon in a Bottle, what was your initial reaction when you heard that Robert Downey Jr. was going to be you know, cast as the character for the Iron Man films, given that at the time his substance abuse issues were still a little bit more in the recent past? Oh, I don't know that. I, I know that comments were made about that, but I, it didn't really... It didn't really affect me one way or the other. I mean, I just wanted to see, okay, let's see what he does. And in my opinion, he was he was fabulous. I, I thought he's, you know, I can't even picture anyone else as Tony Stark now. I think he did a terrific job. Although, even though, oh, from, from what I've been told, he wanted to do the alcoholism storyline, but the movie companies didn't thought that was too dark and didn't want to go there. But at least they touched on it and touched on his... Um, alcohol influence in the stories but I thought yeah I thought uh, I thought he was terrific in the, in the role coming back to the question before about you know Marvel style and, and learning how to kind of do the plots did you find that depending on who your collaborator was that sometimes you would you know kind of chat with them about the, the plot beforehand or was it generally you would give them the plot and then they would they would do the art or did they have any sense of what they were getting or before you actually handed it to them well, that depended on the situation and the the team. Like I say, with, with Bob on both of our runs and Iron Man, we collaborated directly, um, writer, plotter, inker. Um, and the first time we were like living close together, we got together. The second time it was mostly over the phone. So I was on the East Coast and he was out in Colorado. Uh, with others, it, I remember writing, when I first started writing, uh, the Amazing Spider-Man and Todd McFarlane was, was assigned to it. I had never met Todd. And I always try to open up to the penciler specifically uh, what kind of things they would like to do. And if I if it works with what I want to do, I try that because if you've got a penciler who's drawing what he or she enjoys drawing, they probably usually do a better job of it. They have more fun. And I was told, I went through the editor, and I was told that he really didn't want to he had just started the book and he didn't want to kind of feel like he was seemed like he was taking control or anything like that which I thought was very professional and he just asked maybe he could like to draw a character with a cape <laughs> I thought well gee that's I don't know I, I, are there any characters with capes so I, I did a proud story for him so 
and there were others where, well, like an, an unknown soldier. If I wrote the, did the plots, wrote the full scripts that were sent to the Philippines to, to Jerry Tallo, who did a fantastic job, but we never had any interaction as far as working uh, together on the stories. Okay. Um, question about, uh, well, I'm, I don't want to jump right into Spider-Man. I want to kind of work our way to Spider-Man, but you did mention it. Um, yeah. Uh, actually, you know, let's talk about an Avengers issue first. Um, okay. The character of uh, Taskmaster. Uh, a lot of people really enjoy the character. Can you elaborate on the creation of the Taskmaster character? Cause specifically, you know, the delineation between, you know, you and Perez and, and how you created the character together? Well, uh, uh, again, this, this, this gets touchy as far as the term creation. Because I, I've, I've had people take co-creator credit for things that I've created on my own. Uh, I've had people ask me about that. As far as creating that character, we didn't create it together. I created Taskmaster, uh, and uh, uh, George was given the plot, and he drew it. He did, created the visuals, uh, which are great visuals, let's face it. But uh, as far as creating the character, who he is, what he did, why he did it, uh, background, motivation, name, everything, that came from me. Uh, the reason Taskmaster was created is when I write a series, I, I, I try to think of the characters. And in this case, like even Marvel, when I started working for Marvel, I saw two things that I didn't understand. I th- thought two things that I, didn't, I thought needed to be addressed. One is like, where do all these costumed villains get the money for all their gadgets? Uh, you know, where, you know they usually fail because the heroes capture them. Where are they getting all this money for all their 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 vehicles and weapons and stuff? And, and Justin Hammer came from that. That's an Iron Man question you might want to get into later. As far as Taskmaster, I saw every bad guy seemed to have lackeys. You know, hordes and hordes of lackeys in the same costume. That, you know, red shirts basically. If you want to do a Star Trek uh, reference, you know, people to get you know a cannon fodder. You know, where do they come from? Is there a you know Goons R Us store somewhere? Do they go on eBay and <laughs> try to hire thugs? Uh, so Taskmaster came out of that. It's someone who who had this what I called uh, photographic reflexes. He could see something uh, and and then immediately do it. You can see Daredevil throw his cane uh, around, or his, his sticks around, bang, bang, bounce off 14 walls and hit the bad guy. He sees that done once, he can do it immediately, he can re- reproduce that. But he was smart enough that he realized when bad guys go against good guys, bad guys almost always lose. So rather than, you know, get hurt and go to danger and go to, get into danger and go to jail or something, he would train the bad guys to go into danger and get arrested <laughs> so forth and that's how he made his living is that was I, I i he's been changed tremendously since i left i know that but that was the original motive for creating taskmaster as he was back then okay now that was issue 196 of avengers so that kind of brings us up to avengers 200 um what can you tell us about the behind the scenes of the making of that issue <laughs> oh gosh that <laughs> uh that was i okay I had come up with an idea for issue 200. Uh, I'm I'm trying to be tactful here because I don't want to mention any names. I had come up with an idea. Uh, It had been, the the subplots had been done. They had been plotted. They had been 
drawn. They have been scripted. Issue 200 was was on the schedule. Uh, the plot was in. It was about to be drawn. When a story came out, published, that was almost exactly the same as the story was going to be for issue 200. Uh, I, I don't know where. I mean, it was written by an editor. Whether that editor had overheard something, whether that editor had just read the, the plot that had been going around, whether it was done on purpose or whether it was just something stuck in the back of his head and he, he wrote it without realizing it was the same story that I was doing, I don't know. But basically we're stuck with a deadline, with a book that was late, with a story that we couldn't use. So myself and I think, I think Shooter and Layton and one or two other people got together and put this plot together that would fit in with what had been set up but was different. Um, it's gotten a lot of a lot of heat, especially from feminists about uh, uh, Captain Marvel, you know, being pregnant, pregnant, and her accepting this more than a possibly a real woman would. And you know, they're right. But it was done uh, like overnight, uh, trying to fit pieces together uh, at the last minute to make something work. And uh, what I've done differently, if I could go back, yeah, I would. But you know, it was the best we could do at the time. What we were, uh, I mean, it was addressed later on by, I guess, Claremont in the in an Avengers annual. Um, yeah. I mean, what was your your take on that? I mean, as delight as uh, politely as we can be, <laughs> like obviously well, I, it, it was it was a, a pressurized situation because obviously it wasn't meant to be the story that was published, uh, yeah. and some people took umbrage to it. Yep. Um, so, well, I, I never read Chris's story. Um, uh, I, I don't think I'd want to because I'd probably ins be insulted. I've heard that it was somewhat, uh, 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 somewhat negative towards the story, and perhaps even me. And uh, you know, you know, people do things like that. You know, I, I, it's in the past. I can't do anything about it. He has his opinions. I do the best I can under the circumstances. If people don't understand that, I can't change their minds. Well, let's move on to a, a hopefully a happier subject then. Um, this is a listener question. Uh, can you talk about your experiences working with Star Wars during the 80s? Uh, did you find limitations placed upon you by Lucasfilm to be more a source of frustration or inspiration? And which aspects, aspects of your run were you most proud of? Uh, I loved writing Star Wars. Uh, I've, many times I've told about when I was a little kid, I go to the movies, I go to a Tarzan movie, I come home and tie a rope to a, a tree branch and swing around and make up my own Tarzan stories. This was the same thing for a rather immature adult. I mean, <laughs> here was these, these great stories, these great movies with great characters, and I got to write new stories about them and get paid. It was terrific. I loved it. Um, as restrictions, I was given two no-nos by Lucasfilm. I couldn't write, uh, I couldn't get Han Solo out of Carbonite and I couldn't have a direct confrontation between uh, Luke Skywalker and Darth Vader. Those were the only limitations I was given from the, got, that I was given from the start. Now, we got around those, but I did an annual that was a flashback with Han Solo, so I was able to use that character. Uh, and I know Walt Simonson and I were, were co-plotting the thing, and we had one story end, end with Darth Vader coming in a book full page splashed at... Uh, uh, at Luke Skywalker, oh, I've come for you, or something like that. And then 
Uh, and the next issue, it opens up, and it was a hologram. So <laughs> we, we kind of fudged that. We've got those. The only thing they ever asked me to change was in my first story, I had a second Death Star being built. And they said, please don't do that. So I figured, uh-oh, guess what's coming up in Return of the Jedi? <laughs> so we just made a machine that was basically the cannon, the neutron cannon or whatever it was from the Death Star. So we did that story the same way, but with just a different mechanism. Uh, so those are the only restrictions in like a year and a half. I loved writing the stories. Uh, I loved using the characters, playing with the characters. And uh, it, it was, as far as my my best, what I liked best, there were so many things. Um, I guess the Shira Bree storyline that, that was kind of emotional and was, was a, a Luke-centric story may have been my, my favorite storyline there. What was it like working on Indiana Jones stories? Same thing. Again, I loved the movies. There were there were more. There weren't any real restrictions. I don't think. Uh, but we had. I, I don't think I went more than two and a half, three issues with a single artist. The artist kept changing. Usually got good artists. Uh, I mean, Howie Jakin did one issue. Kerry Gamble was terrific. He did a couple of issues. But it was uh, it was difficult with some of the artists, and I kind of butted heads with the uh, editor who was very, you know, uh, very, you know, he was, he was dedicated, but we had some differences of opinion, and eventually that's why I left the book. So, but it was writing the character was terrific, a lot of fun. What led you to, uh, to end your run on Iron Man? Because obviously you were on there for many years, at least the first time. <laughs> first, okay, first time... Um, I remember Bob left, and I continued for two, three issues, and I found that I was, you know, I was, I kind of had done, I, I was having trouble doing anything different. I guess I was kind of, I don't, I wouldn't say burnt out, but I had so much, I'd done about maybe three years worth of stories, uh, and I figured, you know, I don't, I didn't think I was doing as well as I was when Bob and I were working together. The energy wasn't there, so I, I left rather than see the, the quality diminish. Uh, second time, second time, I don't, I don't, I don't remember. <laughs> I, 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 I probably the same thing, probably thought there were other things I would rather do and wondering if I had any ideas. Um, although every time I came back and did miniseries, I seemed to still have ideas for the character and could probably come up with them today, but I don't really remember exactly why I left the, the second time. I'd have to go back and look at the stories and trigger my memory and we don't have time for that <laughs> um you obviously are known for a, a lot of important iron man stories um now you wrote 150 250 and then the later i think it was the legacy of doom miniseries that kind of was the the capper to the trilogy where did that yeah. idea come from to kind of unite iron man and and dr doom and send them through time that was bob bob was a uh, a big king arthur fan and uh, he came up with that, okay, we've got these modern knights, let's send it back to the time, the days of night when knights were bold, you know, so that was his idea, and we came up with the storylines and the, and the characters and the motivations and all that, uh, building from that initial concept. Now, when you did the original one, did you have any idea that you would eventually revisit it? Like, was, was there something still kind of rattling around that, oh, when we, if we ever get a chance to do a sequel to this, or was it just a kind of a, flu, a fluke that 100 issues later, you're like, you know what, let's do another one? I think there was always something in the back of our minds to uh, uh, to follow up. Um, 
So we have basically a story in the past, story in the future, story in the present. So, but uh, I don't. I don't think it was. Well, the first part came so so close to the end of our run the first time that we never really had a chance to do that. So it just seemed natural, you know, when we we're doing the book again, which is a rarity anyway. I said, well, let's let's do a sequel. Let's do one in the future. And then uh, we came up with an idea for. We always kind of wanted to do that last one, you know, the the one in the in the present. So we got a chance to do that as a miniseries. And, uh, it was fun. Uh, Doctor Doom is probably my favorite villain. I, just, I loved writing him. It's interesting because you didn't get a lot of exp- a lot of chances, I guess, to write Doctor Doom. I mean, obviously, in the aforementioned Iron Man stories and a little bit in Amazing Spider Man, but for, I guess you didn't get many other opportunities to play with him. Well, I did a, a, a graphic novel called uh, Emperor Doom. Uh, That's that, right. Uh, was a, based on a concept by Jim Shooter, who said, "Well, what would happen if if Doctor Doom actually?" ruled the world so uh, I did that and actually Bob Hall suggested a few years back that we do a sequel a couple of three years and so I came up with an idea and I submitted it to Marvel and uh, they liked it they gave it and the editor the Uber editor that I dealt with asked for it to be broken into I was thinking of the graphic novel he asked it to be broken into four stories so I did that there's four plots sent him in he gave it the green light to, to an editor gave it to an editor uh, I talked to the editor. Editor had a couple of questions. He said, I'll, I'll get back to you. A year passed. <laughs> Didn't hear from that guy. Called, uh, I emailed him. He said, I'm sorry, I'm not in that office anymore. Uh, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> so I contacted the Uber editor who said, uh, and said, can we get someone else to, to do this, you know, to get an editor, get it working? And he said, uh, I'll talk to my editors and see if anyone's interested, which to me is sort of like a, a general going to his officers and saying, "Is anybody want to go to war? Yeah, show of hands, anyone? <laughs> I mean, you know, he's the boss. He tells people what to do. And, of course, I never heard from him again, so it never happened. But, yeah, uh, that about the Iron Man's, a couple of Spider-Man and the Emperor Doom, it's about all I had to... All I had, oh, wait, we did do a what if, that's right. What if Tony Stark became Doctor Doom, I think. Uh, again, Bob and I did that, and... Uh, that was fun, but that's about it for me and Doc. When you first uh, started writing Spider-Man, I guess on a regular basis, it was in web. What was the the process of them hiring you for that book? Like, um, it was a relatively new book. Um, what were you kind of given in terms of you know any direction on where they wanted the book to go, or how did that work? Well, uh, Jim Owsley, who's now priest, uh, was the editor of, of the books, and he um, editor of Web. And he gave me Web of Spider-Man, offered it to me. I, I grabbed it because Spider-Man was my favorite superhero ever. He's the reason I got back into comics when I was in college. Uh, at the time, he wanted the three Spider-Man books, Web of Spider-Man, Spectacular Spider-Man, and Amazing Spider-Man, to be three distinct uh, moods, I guess. He wanted Amazing Spider-Man to be the standard Spider-Man fighting supervillains stories. He wanted Spectacular to be the, the dark, gritty Spider-Man. And a web, he wanted to be the global Spider-Man, basically Peter as a reporter or a photographer going on general, generally with Joe Mercado, the reporter, to various different locales um, for his stories. Uh, I, I respect that. You know, each one had their different tone, so there's you know a reason for people to you know buy them and make make variety. It was difficult because it took away almost all of the supporting cast and one of the most important aspects, which was New York City. So I had him in, in 
Ireland. I had him in the Midwest. I had him in the uh, and down in, in Delaware. I had him in, in West Virginia. And you know, you can't do the New York stuff in any of those places. And with only one sporting cast member, Joy Mercado, uh, kind of limits. You have to kind of create new characters for each storyline, each story arc. And I was kind of like left without the supporting cast as well as the, the setting. So it was, it was it was fun. It was challenging. I enjoyed it, but it wasn't ideal. Although I, I will forever be grateful to Jim Owsley for assigning me my first Spider-Man book. Uh, what was it? Whose idea was it to uh, bring Spider-Man to Ireland? That was me. Um, period. <laughs> you know, I don't know how else to answer. It was my my idea. Now, what was it like kind of putting that story together with him visiting Northern Ireland and, the, and having the IRA involved? I mean, that was obviously very much of the time. Um, and it kind of, again, an interesting concept for a story. Yeah, well, I, it, was, it was disappointing. Um, I, I wrote a three-part plot for three parts. Uh, I, I, I read four books on the troubles in Northern Ireland. I watched two video documentaries, took my notes, did my research, uh, wrote the first one, wrote the second one, the third one was plotted. Uh, and then after the first one appeared, uh, Marvel got a bomb threat from someone saying they represented the IRA. And the, the building was evacuated, nothing happened. But I was told, you know, make it different, change it. <laughs> so they wouldn't, you know, so they wouldn't have any more, you know, no, who wants to blow up people for a comic book? Come on. <laughs> uh, but I just, I said, well, I won't change it because everything I said is documented. I didn't say these people are good, these people are bad. I didn't say the other ways around. The one point I made in the entire trilogy was killing people is bad. No matter what your reason, killing people is bad. Either side. That was the, the only you know thing that was supposed to say. But I would I, I would not change it because, like I said, I didn't do anything wrong. I, I everything was I could say documented exactly what happened. I quoted people for things that they actually said. But on the other hand, I didn't want to be responsible for some poor guy in the mailroom having his hands blown off from a letter bomb. So I I backed out. I, I said, okay, I, I will. I will not complain. I will not change it, but I won't complain. Have someone else do it, and they did that. So there's an issue with, with no uh, credits on it. That was. I think that was the one that I plotted. Someone else rewrote to make it Roxon being the the bad guys instead of the IRA or or whatever. So it was it was it was difficult. It was unfortunate. Uh, I liked the stories. I liked the, what 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 I had said. But, I mean, I can understand I didn't want to bring violence on, on innocent people myself for just writing a freaking comic book story. Come on. <laughs> to, to go back to, to Iron Man for a second, so around, around this time is when you, you kind of started your second run in Iron Man. Um, now, how did they, they woo you back to Iron Man? Because you've been off for a, you know, a number of years. Yeah. Uh, well, Mark Gruenwald asked me if I would be interested in, in writing it again, and he had asked Bob, and, you know, that kind of, you know, got the band back together, so to speak, um, although John Romita Jr. wasn't available. Uh, it just, I, I was surprised, if I, I, I guess I needed another assignment, I don't really remember what else I was doing at the time, but I was surprised that I, would, I immediately started getting ideas for what to do with the character. So 
that's how it came about. I went out, Bob was living in Denver at the time. I flew out there, we sat around and talked about stuff and realized, you know, it's we're still clicking as far as, as plotting it. And so uh, we agreed to do it. And I was, like I say, on the East Coast, he was out in the West and we plotted. It was before, sadly, before email and, and computer and Skype and stuff like that. But uh, we, we plotted on the phone and generally had the same working method except that uh, I didn't have a headset <laughs> for my phone at the time so phone conversations were, were shorter than they would have been than conversations would have been if we had plotted face to face because my ear got tired but uh, <laughs> other than that it was kind of slipping back into familiar and comfortable shoes now, it's interesting looking at those issues. I mean, when you come back, you're immediately kind of setting up for Armor Wars, uh, and there's uh, definitely a good sense of energy in the book, I guess because you guys were you know, revitalized and really came at it with all these ideas. Um, what was it about the what would become the Armor Wars storyline that really clicked for you and uh, is part of why you put it together? Again, I have to give credit to Jim Shooter for the concept. Uh, I think it was over dinner at some Italian restaurant in New York that Jim said, suggested something about, you know, someone stealing Tony's technology and using it uh, for for bad, as opposed to for good. And that struck me as being a very good way to examine Tony Stark's core of nobility, uh, which is what was explored in the uh, the alcoholism issues. No matter, no matter, you know how low he goes, as this core of humanity and nobility that will eventually rise to the surface. So we had him with this tremendous guilt, the obsessive guilt that the the technology that he's created to do good and to to help people is being used to harm them and and, and create destruction and, and misery. And you know this 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 drive to, for him to get this back, which cost him friends and almost his life, which just seemed like such a strong storyline and such a strong character assessment that, you know, it's just, yeah, let's do this. Um, now, it's been, I mean, it's very much revered. Um, is there anything that you actually would have changed in the storyline? I, I had not, some, nothing occurs to me at the time, at the, the moment, no. Okay. Um, now, to go back to Spider-Man, so what was the transition like between you leaving Webb and getting Amazing Spider-Man? Because that's, you know, I guess, not that Webb's not a, a, a good book, but I guess Amazing Spider-Man was obviously the flagship Spider-Book. Oh, yeah. No, that was uh, that was the height of, of my career. <laughs> I mean, it's like, here's the character, the uh, superhero I like best of all. Here's the original book. Here's the book. I remember going to a 7-Eleven type store when I was a sophomore in college and, and someone, a, a friend of mine had recommended Spider-Man. And, uh, so I picked up an issue. They had two issues in the, in the spinner rack. I picked up, took it home. I fell in love with Spider-Man. And so being offered Amazing Spider-Man, which was the books that I had started reading, as it was just, you know, a joy. So it was, the transitioning was fine, it was good. Now I was writing the, the flagship book. I was in New York, I had all the sporting cast. It was, you know, it, it it didn't get much better than that for me at that time. Now it's interesting looking at you know, your first issue of Amazing or the first arc is that it's signaling a huge status quo shift, which is obviously resulting in the in the marriage between Peter and MJ. What was it like to kind of be writing at that period and and be the one shepherding in that new era? I hated it. Um, <laughs> it's like I, I, here I get to write Spider Man. I get to write the character that I love reading. 
except the character I loved reading wasn't married. <laughs> but but I don't want to marry them. I don't want to write a married character. So, uh, and I expressed that, but Stanley was getting them married in the newspaper strip, and it had been decided they're going to get married in the comics. So I had the choice of either not taking that on and going on to something else or trying to make it work. And I thought, okay, I'll do something different. I'll make it a good marriage. I won't have the bickering. I won't have the, you know, the separation, the arguing. I'll make it, the, okay, here are two people who were meant for each other, that support each other, and they're happy. And I found that to be challenging but interesting, and I ended up loving writing Spider-Man for the most point. Amazing Spider-Man. It's interesting because we have a listener question, which is kind of just on those lines, because he asked, how did you handle the MJ Peter marriage? And why did you seem to have little trouble writing it and making it interesting to teenage boys when most of your successors are the, other than an, a few particular uh, writers? They seem to struggle hard to write the marriage and wanted to wish it away. So what was it about your approach that I guess you kind of said it, that you made them happy? You made it a good marriage and you didn't make it just a stereotypical nagging problem marriage. <laughs> I guess that's it. I mean, you know, if, if your characters are universal enough, uh, if the feelings are universal enough, you know, teenage boys fall in love. I mean, <laughs> probably they dream about marrying uh, actresses and models, and Peter did that. And it, he, so here you've got a guy who's got this power and everything, but with all the problems, and this beautiful woman who loves him despite all of his dangers and stuff, and it's like, wow, why can't I meet a woman like that? So uh, maybe that's what made it work. Maybe you said, like, like you know, making the characters likable by making it a good marriage. Maybe that just made it, uh, you know, interesting for the people reading it, that they liked the characters so much they wanted them to be happy and they cared about them. I don't know. You have to ask my psychiatrist. <laughs> Obviously, you were you were on Amazing Spider-Man for a number of years. Um, while you were throughout your run, was there ever any talk behind the scenes about trying to end the marriage? No. No, it was just you were just kind of said this. This is the way it is now, and just make it work. Yeah, I mean that's that's the way I saw it, and I went through two different editors, and uh, neither of them. Well, actually, three. If you count Jim Owsley, he left pretty soon. Anyway, um, yeah, and nobody wanted me to change anything i guess i guess the people behind the scenes were happy enough with uh the way it was going that you know they didn't ask me to change it another listener question asked uh in your late 80s early 90s iron man and spider-man runs both characters had fairly happy and successful personal lives why it seems like you were making it harder on yourself to generate stories they say happiness writes white did you think bad luck had been overdone with marvel characters or was it a challenge to yourself as a writer or did you just prefer writing happy stories i think it's more the thing of thinking that you know uh, bad luck had been overdone. Uh, I mean, most of the characters are, are, are tragic. You know, I mean, even uh, even Spider-Man, particularly early on, uh, one of the things that made him different, that Stan Lee and, and Steve Ditko did to make him different, is he had problems. That was great. It, it was made him more human. But I think that people saw that and didn't realize why it worked realize why okay it made it more human and they would take it to extreme and they would take characters and they would just wreck their lives which we did best by the way in uh, uh, the alcoholism storyline storyline you know we did give him really bad luck there but he triumphed over it and that's that's i, I think was the whole key you know uh to that storyline but yeah yeah i didn't want to just you know 
I wanted to give people problems because we all have problems, but I didn't want to destroy their lives unless there was a reason, like with the alcohol. So I don't know. I guess yeah, that's it. I just I, I thought it was a little different to make people relatively happy with problems. Now you you wrote this Spider-Man marriage, like the actual issue, marriage issue. What was it like putting that issue together? Because obviously that was going to be a big one. That was a that was one of the biggest, I guess, Spider-Man annuals that they ever published in terms of its importance on continuity and that it really mattered. Well, I did a plot. I was trying to again. I try to do stuff differently. I'm I'm not a push the envelope kind of guy. I don't come with with, with wild off the cuff, off the, you know, out of this world from left field stuff generally. But I try to be different, at least a little different. So I came up with a plot that had uh, Spider-Man walking along at one point the, and, and talking to someone and we switch angles and I just talking to Uncle Ben, who's of course been dead for many years, about, you know, he's not, no, doesn't know if he's ready for marriage, is he mature enough, if he's gone through stuff. And another point, he's, he's talking to uh, Gwen Stacy, who's also been dead, and it's like, you know, about, he doesn't want to marry Jane, put in danger, and all these worries and stuff, and it, it turns out at the end, we find out he's, he has a concussion from a fight early on, over the, the story opens with a fighter as a previous issue or something, and that he was hallucinating. He was basically talking to himself, trying to work out his fears and worries and concerns about this huge step, and he would come to the conclusion that, yes, Mary Jane's ready for it. I'm ready for it. This is a good thing, and he would get married. So when I turned it in, uh, Jim Shooter took me into his office, and he said he liked the plot. It was a good plot. He appreciated it. I was trying to do something different. But <clears throat> this story was going to get a lot of publicity, and there would be a lot of, quote, civilians, unquote, reading this story. And they, he thought they needed something more standard to uh, appeal to those people who weren't familiar, didn't read Spider-Man all the time. So I turned the plot at his request over to him, and he did the plot, and then I wrote the script for it. So it, it wasn't the story I had planned on telling, but it was a more commercial story, and it sold well. And that's the story of that. It's interesting, because I think there were later points, I'm trying to remember the exact issues, but I know that there were elements of that kind of concept where Peter did have a concussion later, and he did imagine that he was talking to Uncle Ben. Uh, <laughs> Interesting, interesting. No, I, I think you actually wrote it, though. <laughs> uh, well, even more interesting. When did I... Uh, yeah, you don't have a issue number. Or, um, yeah. I have a feeling it might have been Amazing Spider-Man 350. Um, 350, oh, okay. Which, incidentally, was up. also uh, a Doctor Doom issue. <laughs> okay, well, never I, forget anything. Always, there's always a way to use an idea if it's a good one. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I, I'm going to switch back to Iron Man one more second. I keep going cross uh, back and forth, so I do apologize for giving you a character whiplash. Um, that's all right. My, my neck's a little sore, but that's okay. <laughs> we had a, a listener question, which was, uh, what did you think when you first saw the art for Tony Stark's mullet? <laughs> uh, I, I, I defer to Bob Layton for that. <laughs> okay. Uh, let's go back to Spider-Man then. Um, uh, obviously, a huge hallmark of your run was the creation of Venom and then later proliferation of the character. Um, what what was it that kind of that generated that idea for that character? What, what were you going for originally? Okay, well, again, when I start to write a character, when I, I, or in time when I write a character, I try to utilize the unique elements of that character. 
now in Spider-Man, you have the webbing, you have the wall crawling, you have his acrobatics, all this stuff. But the one thing that no one else had, and uh, these days I have no idea if anyone else does, but was his spider sense. This early warning spider sense, if he's ever in danger, he's learned to react to it like a, a, a doctor hitting your knee with a, a, a mallet and your, your knee had leg jerk, jerking up. It was a, a reflex, he would, and you know, he would dodge from the, away from the danger. He's so used to that. I thought, well, what if there was a character who wanted to kill him but didn't trigger that warning system? And in existence was the, the alien symbiote from the black costume that uh, I believe Wheezy Simonson had gotten rid of, pulled, got away from, from Peter in, I think it was web number one. But it was still in the Marvel Universe, and it had been established that it didn't trigger Peter's spider sense. So I thought, what if this symbiote that would hate Spider-Man for rejecting him, you know, got together with a character who wanted to kill Spider-Man. And, uh, and I came up with the Eddie Brock character, who was a, a weightlifter who hated Spider-Man because he blamed Spider-Man for losing his job. It was really his fault because he, he, had, it was, he had been a reporter who uh, get, turned in a story that was based on hearsay it was wrong, and he got fired because of it, but he hated Spider-Man. So what if these two things, beings that hate Spider-Man, got together and didn't trigger Spider-Man's spider sense? So I started setting that up in Web of Spider-Man with two subplots where one, Peter Parker's standing at a, at a, in front of a subway track and someone pushes him in front of it and he gets out, but it didn't trigger his spider sense. And another one that I, I plotted and someone else ended up scripting, uh, Spider-Man's on the edge of a building, a hand comes out of a window, grabs him and slings him off the building. Again, it doesn't trigger his spider sense. So that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to explore that, and that's how I set it up in web and, and ended up doing it in Amazing Number 300. It's what if there's a character whose sole purpose is to kill Spider-Man, and he doesn't trigger that spider sense. What does that do to Spider-Man's, to Peter Parker's uh, confidence, to his sense of well-being? What, what does that do to him emotionally? And there you have the birth of Venom. With the benefit of now, this is actually a listener question, but it dovetails perfectly with that uh, where you ended there. With the benefit of hindsight, do you think Eddie Brock's motivation for hold, hold, uh, hating Spider-Man holds up, or is there anything you would have done differently with Brock had you known Venom would become such a popular recurring character? No, I think it works. It, it uh, I've told this story before. Maybe your listeners haven't heard it, but the original, my original concept for Venom was completely different for the character that became Venom. It was originally a woman. I was going to have a woman who was pregnant, uh, her, her water broke or something, she was about to be taken, she needed to go to the hospital, uh, her husband took her out, went out, uh, was trying to flag a cab to get her to the hospital, the cabbie was looking up at Spider-Man fighting something from, um, oh gosh, what was this graphic novel that he did about the, the, the living... Uh, living pharaoh who became the living planet later on but anyway in a fight and the cabbie hit the husband killed him the woman miscarried because of the shock she went into catatonic um, uh, um, into catatonia uh, and when she came out of it she realized you know she'd lost her child she lost her husband and she blamed it she, she was mentally disabled mentally disturbed and and, and blamed it all on Spider-Man, then she joined with the, um, the symbiote and became Venom, who wanted to kill Spider-Man. That was her motivation, because she blamed him for the death of her child and her uh, husband, which is maybe a stronger motivation. Uh, when I was switched over to Amazing Spider-Man and Jim Salakrup was the editor, he 
he uh, he wanted something big for issue 300 of Amazing. I suggested this villain that I had been setting up in web. He liked it, but he didn't know that um, uh, readers would accept a, a female character uh, standing toe-to-toe with Spider-Man. Now, this was a long time ago. Don't blame Jim, <laughs> but uh, he suggested if I made it a, a male character. So doing that didn't change what I wanted to do with the whole thing about the spider sense. So I came up, that's when I came up with the Eddie Brock character and his motivation. So maybe the original motivation was a little stronger. I think the motivation that Eddie had, because he was also a little uh, disturbed and, and, and you know focused on something that wasn't quite, basically blaming someone else so he wouldn't have to take the blame himself. And at that wall up there that got stronger and stronger as, as he tried to, to kill what he blamed so he wouldn't have to to blank him himself. I think it's it's maybe more subtle. Um, Well, just as a clarification, I did check. um, It is Amazing Spider-Man 350 where uh, after fighting Dr. Dooms, uh, Peter Parker has a bit of a concussion. He goes out and uh, while he's walking on the street, he runs into Uncle Ben and then he uh, ends up, you know, meeting up with some colleagues and he's like, hey, this is my uncle. He's dead. And then he just passes out because he has a concussion. (laughs) Gosh, I wish I thought of that. Well, it's you. You wrote it. <laughs> I know. That's so funny. Um, I'm just trying, trying, trying to move on after my 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 uh, uh, memory lapse there. <clears throat> <laughs> well, can I ask another question about Venom? So this is a listener question. Um, in retrospect, I mean, it was obviously one of the top villain creations of the last 30 years, and you created a very chilling villain. Um, in retrospect, do you think that since then Venom has been over overused or has in any way become a caricature of his early appearances, uh, especially you know being made Defender of the Innocent, etc.? Do you think it takes away from the initial impact of the character? Well, I, 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 I definitely think it's been overused. Uh, when, when Jim Salker was editing the book, uh, he was very careful with the character, and he didn't allow, allow anyone else to use the character. He was requested, he turned him down, um, and to his credit and, and my everlasting thanks, he never asked me to write the character uh, just to sell books. He let me write the character when I had an idea for something that hadn't been done that, that could progress the character or the relationship between Venom and Spider-Man. So every time Venom appeared, something new happened. The story, the motivations were moved along. Uh, editors changed, and the new editor uh, opened up Venom to everybody. And in fact, he was the first person to write Venom besides me. And yeah, it gets diluted. You get other people's views, and they change. I remember one writer who, who did a story where Venom had two powers that he'd never shown before and they never explained now suddenly he could sense when spider-man was around he could couldn't do that when i had written them <laughs> all the times you know so gee how come when he was together in my stories when he was nearby he didn't sense spider-man you know it's, so yeah and the whole thing about him you know agent venom and this that and the other i think it's been overused uh i, I haven't read anything with venom in, it in a long time but you know, once you leave, if you don't own the character, and I don't own any of those characters, you can't do anything about it. And if he's still popular, apparently is, apparently there are enough people who are doing enough things that readers want that, you know, they like it. So, eh, what can I say? My stuff's there if anybody wants to read it. <laughs> <laughs> well, and they definitely do, and Marvel definitely keeps uh, reprinting it. I mean, it's popular stuff. I mean, that, you know, your run... 
you know, was is a, is a huge thing for a lot of people who kind of grew up with that era of Spider-Man, me especially. Like, I definitely kind of grew up during your tenure. So your Spider-Man reads like my Spider-Man, because it is. Oh, you're welcome. Um, now, another listener question. Uh, you had a long, impactful run on Amazing Spider-Man with incredibly hot artists. What was it like to be up close to the McFarlane phenomenon as it happened? And did you ever feel like, or feel now, that you were unjustly underrated in comparison to the attention given to McFarlane, Larson, and later Bagley? Uh, well, first off, working with Todd was a joy, an absolute joy. He, he, he drew the stories according to the plots. He told the stories clearly. Um, there was no ego in evidence. Uh, he drew great, interesting stuff. I loved writing from his pencils. Um, did he get more attention to me? You betcha. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, it, it's hard because he's, he's become a superstar and, and, and people loved his work. And, you know, the writing got a, a bit of a short shrift there, I, I think. But I also think that's natural. Uh, comics are a visual medium. A lot of people read them or buy them for for the for the artwork um yeah uh, eric larson was popular and, and mark bagley was popular the books sold actually the thing is the only consistency in my entire run was me <laughs> but the book sold better and better and better and better todd mccarlin it started to go through the roof it actually sold even better with eric larson eric larson and crew and then it actually sold better with mark bagley so, you know, it kept getting better and better. And the only thing that was consistent through it was me. So, you know, that, I, you know I, I'm not saying I did it, but, you know, <laughs> there is that point. Uh, but I was, I was always, even from my start, uh, getting Jerry Tallow for um, um, Unknown Soldier, I've been lucky to get, you know, really good artists on my books. I mean, uh, Walt Simonson on Star Wars, uh, John Romita Jr., Bob Layton on Iron Man. You know, it's, it's, I've been really lucky in that way. And if I have to take a slight backseat to the artwork, well, okay, I'm, I'm happy with my stories. I'm proud of them. And I'm, I'm sure they were better for having good artists on them. Mm-hmm. Uh, how and why did you end up leaving the Spider-Man character? I mean, you're on it. If you count Webb and ASM together, I mean, you were definitely on there for quite uh, quite a while. So, what kind of led to you leaving? Well, uh, the editor changed basically, and uh, whereas Jim Salakrup had given me a lot of freedom, you know, along you know, along with his guidance, a lot of freedom. The new editor and I had very different viewpoints, uh, and I ended up doing a lot of stuff and stories that the editor wanted that I, I just tried to do my best with. They weren't stories that I would have chosen. Uh, I think the, the Carnage three-parter was the last thing I actually had real control over. And uh, things happened. And I, I, one example is the editor thought it would be a cool idea to have Peter Parker's parents come back. And so he said, we're going to do that. Uh, over all the books. And I said, okay, well, are they really his parents? Uh, he didn't know. He just thought it was a good idea. So well, are, they, are they robots? Are they aliens? Uh, are, they, are they dupes? Are this? He didn't know. He, he, he just well, thought it would be a good, a good idea. And, and so, like, for almost a year, I had to juggle this subplot of his parents' bat, not knowing, are they real, his parents? Are they something else? Do I give them jobs? Do I send them away? What do I do with this? So it was like juggling in the subplot that I didn't know what was going to happen with them. 
how am I supposed to handle it? And it just got so frustrating that I finally, you know, said, okay, I'm, I'm done. I'm not having fun anymore, and so I left. Uh, if it hadn't been for that, I'd be happy to still writing, be writing Amazing Spider-Man today. <laughs> I didn't run out of ideas. Uh, it didn't run out of enthusiasm. I just ran out of having fun. Gotcha. Uh, last question before we have to let you go. Um, what was it like working on the Superman titles in the 90s? Well, it was a kick. It was, it, it was I mean, here I am. I've written Spider-Man for Marvel Comics, and I've written Superman for DC. You know, it, it's two out of three of the triumvirate, or the troika, whatever, of, which ends with Batman. I was never able to write uh, Batman on a regular, regular basis. But uh, that saying, I mean, I was very, ever grateful to Mike Carlin for bringing me on the books. Um, I loved writing Superman, but it was, it was tough writing. I was like one-fifth of a writer, because it was a monthly, four monthlies and a, uh, and a quarterly. So it was a new Spider, Storm, Superman story every week, and everything tied together. So it was kind of like, you know, the first part of every story I had to reconcile with the previous story. Then the last part of every story I wrote, I had to start with the next person's story. So I, I never really had free reign on the stories that I could tell. Uh, but I did the best I could. I'm pretty happy with them. And again, I feel very, very lucky to have had that run. It was, it was a thrill. Excellent. The end. Where can, uh, where can uh, our listeners find out more? Like, do you have current projects coming out or anything you want to promote? I've actually signed a contract with a, a publisher in Mexico to publish a graphic novel that I did with uh, an artist I met in Spain named uh, Cesar Madaro. Uh, the graphic novel is called The Lunoir Saga, and it's told without dialogue. So uh, it's, it's hopefully that will come out. It's supposed to be avail- available digitally once I've received their contract signed back, and hopefully will be in print. Eventually, I will announce that on my, my Facebook page where, if that happens. And what else? There's something else. Oh, I've got a short story, a prose short story coming out in an anthology, I think around May. I'm not sure. I'm supposed to do a podcast next month about that specifically, so I assume it's coming out there. And a, and a paperback anthology called Singularity, Rise of the Post-Humans. Um, but that's about it. There's, there's a little bit of chance that I have a comic book project uh, might be coming out, but uh, I've been back and forth with uh, a publisher for, gosh, seven months now, <laughs> so I don't know if that'll actually happen, so I don't want to mention it. But again, you know, tune into my Facebook page, and I'll, I'll post any news there. How are you? I'm good. <laughs> great, great. Glad to hear it. We're just talking about me. I feel so, you know, like we should talk about you for a while, but it's you got to go. you got something else in five minutes, so I guess that's it. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate your time. Well, thank you very much for your interest. I hope your uh, listeners found it of uh, some entertainment. I, I, think, I think they'll very much appreciate your time. Thank you again. You're welcome.